following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. I am so excited about this morning. Uh, We get the opportunity to step into the book of Joel together. And I know that Joel is a relatively unknown book. It's one of those minor prophets that maybe, if you're honest, you haven't read a whole lot of. Um, And for that reason alone, by the way, I am really excited to dig into Joel with you. Uh, But I believe that God is going to speak through his word to speak through Joel. For many of us, God may never have used the book of Joel to speak to you, to get our attention. So because of that, I believe that this time together is going to be a moment that is going to be a fresh awakening to God's word and what he has for us. I do want to give you a warning. Um, Joel, what we're going to be looking at will not be easy. There is a reason Joel is not the most popular book. There is a reason why Joel is not the most common book. The reason is, is that the message of Joel is arguably one of the most confrontational messages to popular culture. We're going to see that the message of Joel is a countercultural message. And you may hear that and think, okay, well, what's new? I mean, here we just got through walking, for example, through the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, there are few books that touch on hot button issues like the book of 1 Corinthians. I mean, we talked about marriage and gender, sexuality, and for a culture that is in the middle of a sexual revolution, that is not exactly a popular book to walk through right now. And so you might hear this and, and think, okay, what is different? What's different? Hear me, Joel is different. The message of Joel is different. What Joel is going to do here is, is to contradict the belief in the message that our culture gives us, not just on a level of morality, but on a level of theology. He's not just going to stop there, though, because this message is not only going to maybe bump against the popular culture, but in many ways this message will often bump up against the popular message that is preached in churches and held to. This is a countercultural message. This message is a realigning message. This message, as Joel will so clearly state, is a wake-up call message for God's people. This message will challenge us to see God differently. And as a result of seeing him differently, we will walk away from this message seeing sin differently and therefore seeing ourselves differently. So here's where we are headed. Today we are going to look at the book of Joel, Joel's concept of what he calls the day of the Lord. Um, And with that, what we're really going to be looking at is the way God looks at, views, and deals with sin. And next week, we're going to look at Joel's, Joel's calling to us of repentance. And in essence, what that is, is we are going to be then looking at our response, the way we deal with, the way we handle 
sin. And then that following week, I cannot wait. We are going to get the privilege of celebrating Christmas um, with this profound and important part of Joel's message that simply says, our God came and he is coming again. And that's where we are headed. Like I said, I believe that this is going to be a very important time for us as a church. And so what I'd like for us to do is to start with uh, kind of pushing the pause button and us just coming before the Lord as we come to this book. And let's ask him to do an incredible work. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come to you now with an excitement and with a joy. Regardless of what we are going through in our lives, regardless of what we are facing, we now get the great privilege and opportunity this morning of hearing from you. You are the almighty God, creator, sustainer, the sovereign one, and yet this morning we know that we are here to hear from you. You have promised to to speak, Lord, and so we stand on that promise and we ask that you speak and would you give us the ability the ears, the eyes, the mind, the strength to hear, to see, to understand, and then, Lord, to apply. Before we open, Joel, I want to pray a bold prayer to you, Lord. Would you change us this morning? Regardless of who we are, how long we have been following you, how new we are to the faith, how not so new we are to the faith, whoever We are, wherever we are, would you change us? Would this be a moment that we remember as the moment you, through your spirit, your word, your son's work, through your love, would we remember this moment as a moment when you changed us? And we pray this boldly in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, if you haven't already, grab your Bible, open, scroll with me, flip with me, however you do it, to uh, Joel. And find your place with me while you're getting there. Let me give you a little context, and I do say little for a reason, because there is, let me put it this way, Joel's message, we're going to get to that, that's pretty crystal clear. However, the context, we know very little of the historical context of Joel, and I'll I'll unpack that um, here for us. But for example, let's think about the man, Joel, the prophet. What do we know about this man? Well, um, verse 1 kind of tells us what we know about Joel. Verse 1 says, The word of the Lord came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. That's what you know about Joel. We know that Joel was a prophet because he had a word for the, from the Lord. He was a God's mouthpiece to his people. We know that. And we also know that Joel had a dad, and his dad's name was Pethuel. There is Joel. That is the man, the prophet Joel. Beyond that, we only know about him from what we read from him in his message. Uh, Well, let me ask this. What about the dating of the book? When did Joel write this book? Hear me. There is no other book in all of Scripture, not one, no other book in all of Scripture that has a wider range of possibilities than the book of Joel. It is crazy. If you read scholars, if you read commentators, we are all over the map on when we believe Joel to have written this letter. 
In fact, uh, I read a, a pretty honest commentary as I was preparing for this that gave the range for Joel over here at either 1000 BC to 460 BC. So what that means, in essence, that's called a punt. That's called a, I don't know. And so it's somewhere in Old Testament time frame. That's basically what those dates do for us. It is so open, but here's the, here's the, the fun part about this, is it shouldn't matter. And here's, here's why. Joel's message is timeless. The truth of Joel's message is that it transcends the happenings of any moment in history. Through the mouth of this prophet, God delivers a word, a timeless word, a word that we are going to see, that we're going to be wrestling with. Um, and as we do, we're going, to, we're going to see very clearly that this is like God has spoken directly to us in our time, right now in our time today. Here's what is clear about Joel, though. Joel is known for being the book of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. It is all throughout. And, and so I want us to start our time together by digging into this idea, Joel's idea of the day of the Lord. Joel begins this in chapter 1. And he yell, he's kind of yelling out this wake-up call. I, I don't know about you, but if any of you took me up on my challenge and read Joel this week, as I was reading this, I could not help but think about Joel kind of yelling this first chapter. Just excited and passionate and urgent. And just, you feel it as you read this. He says, listen, hear this, whoever you are, all hear this. And he says, you know what? Listen to this and keep sharing this. Tell it to your children. Tell it to their children, your children's children's children, your children's children's children. And you get it, right? Tell it. Keep telling it. And he is, he's passionate. And then after he passionately calls for all of their attention, he directs the attention to the locust. Oh, the locust. He says in verse four, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. This is not good. Anyone been through a locust plague before? I would have been surprised if you said yes. They are still happening, by the way. Um, if you Google it, it is quite disturbing. Uh, I want to share a picture with you of this nastiness, if you have it. Yeah. As you can see, those are like birds. I mean, that is disturbing. That's a, a normal-sized child with just an abnormal size locust swarm around him, right? Um, it's just disturbing. It's disturbing. And if you think about how loud that must be, these nasty little insects, by the thousands, the hundreds of thousands, the millions uh, upon millions of locusts everywhere, there are accounts of... This kind of plague being so, there's so many locusts everywhere. There's accounts of their sheer number blocking out the sun. <laughs> if you just think about that, I don't like insects. If you can't tell, um, 
not a fan of locust plagues. And that is just insane. And I don't know who this young child's parents are. I would not let my son, any of them, go play anyway. It's just, ugh. but more important than that, more important than just how disturbing and how loud and how chaotic it must be to be in a swarm like that, more important than that is can you imagine the destruction? The complete devastation left behind by this. So I know this is kind of hard to imagine, but there was a time when we used to grow our food, um, all of our food. And um, as crazy as it sounds, do you know what happens when millions of bird locusts, as I will refer to them, fly over your food? It's a buffet for them. And all you can eat buffet until there is nothing left to eat. When locusts come flying over your food, you are left with nothing. There is nothing left. Your field is barren. That is why Joel says, hey, the cutting locusts ate some. The swarming locusts made sure they got the rest. But then those hopping locusts just came to make sure. And then the destroying locust came behind him just to really make sure that it's all gone. This is why he put, points us here. He is showing us the massive, extensive amount of damage. And the point here is that nothing, nothing is left. Not one thing is left. Then Joel says, wake up. Oh, people, wake up. Take notice because this is coming. Then he brings the message closer to his people. Verse 10. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Well, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. Nothing left. Verse 12, the vine dries up. The fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. And listen to this. Move with me down through chapter 1 to the start of chapter 2. Joel here is just continuing this imagery. Then we get to chapter 2, and we need to ask, why is Joel doing this? Why is Joel pointing us to this plague of bird locusts? Why is he doing this? Listen to this. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. There like has never been before nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Then listen to this incredible imagery, verse 3. Fire devours them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. You hear that? It's like beautiful and lush, the Garden of Eden, Eden even right in front of you, but behind you is nothing but 
barren wilderness. Nothing is left behind. So we stop and we have to ask, what is Joel comparing these terrible locusts with? What is he doing? What is he saying here? Joel is pointing us to the fact of the day of the Lord. Joel is making this profound point that the day of the Lord is going to be like that plague of locusts and nothing will be left behind. Nothing will be left behind. And in light of that, he is screaming out, take notice, wake up, people, hear me, take notice, the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. Then he says, verse 11, the Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? This is the day of the Lord, and this is a terrifying day. Joel's point here is that the day of the Lord is coming and none can escape it. The day of the Lord is the day when God intervenes. He steps in to deal with sin. The day when God intervenes as the righteous judge and brings with him perfect judgment. And by the way, just for a moment, Joel's not the only one who talks about this like this. Um, it, for example, if you were to go one prophet to your right in, uh, in Amos, um, you don't have to turn with me here, but he says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light. Listen to this. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. That's awesome. Or went into a house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? That's the day of the Lord. Zephaniah, another one, just one more, says it like this. The great day of the Lord is near and hastening fast. The sound of that day of the Lord is bitter. The man cries aloud there. A mighty man cries aloud there. He says, a day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. Clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. This is the day of the Lord. And this is what Joel is warning us about. The day of the Lord is the moment when God intervenes and shows himself to be just. To sh shows himself to be perfect, shows himself to be holy. One commentator said it like this, the day of the Lord is, the, is a time of direct divine intervention and in human history in order to reorder the affairs on earth. The day of the Lord is the moment in which God intervenes to judge and to save the day of the Lord is the moment when God intervenes as the holy, righteous judge to judge sin. Now, I want to ask you a question, and um, this may sound real simplistic and mundane, but, but follow with me here. Um, did God take sin seriously in the Old Testament? How many say yes? All right. Yes. If you read the Old Testament, it would be very hard to come to a different conclusion. 
You cannot escape the realization that our God took sin seriously. We read about God's judgment on people because of sin. We read about death, about nations being judged because of sin. We read about people losing their lives. What about all of the animals? Like, constantly killing animals because of sin. We read about smiting. I don't know if that's a word, but you know what I mean. Um, We read about judgment and justice. We read about it in the history books in your Bible. We read about it in the prophetic books of your Bible. We read about it all through the Old Testament. We read this clear message that God is serious about sin. He didn't tolerate it. He didn't let one single thing slide without some animal losing its life. We see this all through the Old Testament. He hates sin. He is perfect, holy, just, and the Old Testament paints this picture of our God being holy, holy, holy. So let me ask another question. Is God still like this? Is our God still like what I just described, the God of the Old Testament? Is our God still like this? As I was reading Joel just now, as you were reading it this week, as I just read Amos, Zephaniah, about the day of the Lord, some of us might be thinking, well, Pastor, was that just a back then thing? I mean, we're in a different time now. I mean, all that smiting just doesn't seem right. What about grace? Right? What about, what about grace? Is our God still like this? Does he still feel the same way? And to the same extent about our sin today? as he did then. I want us to understand something together. Scripture is clear that our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That our God sees sin the same yesterday, today, and forever. He responds to sin the same yesterday, today, and forever. I want to put this before you. If you catch yourself thinking Differently, If you catch yourself thinking, well, that Old Testament God was all about war, justice, judgment, holiness, righteousness. While the New Testament God, see, that's the one about love, about grace, happy walks through butterfly fields, right? Acceptance, regardless of sin. Acceptance, kumbaya, right? If we catch ourselves beginning to think this way, especially as you read about the day of the Lord in Joel, if you catch yourself believing that, thinking that we must stop ourselves because that misunderstanding will make the gospel of Jesus Christ impossible for us to understand. I know that's a big statement, so I want to unpack that. And what I want to do, just for a moment, as I said, Joel's not the only one who talked about the day of the Lord. I've pulled out a couple of his, his, uh, his prophet friends. I'd like to look at the New Testament now. 
And I want to look at two New Testament authors specifically really quick and read about what the New Testament says about this day, the day of the Lord. And I want to start with Peter. Peter. This comes from 2 Peter 3, 1. If you want to turn there, you can, but you don't need to because I'll be quick. Peter says this. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. In other words, I'm reminding you. Verse 2, he says, that you should remember the prediction of the holy prophets. In other words, you know Joel? Remember him. That's what he's saying there. Remember the prediction of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So he's saying, Look back, focus back to what the prophets, apostles have said. Remember that I am writing so that you remember Joel. Then he says, verse 3, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they're, they're going to say, they, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. But listen to this. Skip down with me to verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, I want to acknowledge just a couple things from Peter here. Number one, Peter says, hey, that day, that day of the Lord that the prophets told you about is still coming. It still hasn't happened yet. It is future. He points to something that has not happened yet. So he says, hey, you remember what Ezekiel, what Joel, what Amos, what Zephaniah, you remember what they said? Remember it, because it hasn't happened yet. It's something that is still in the future. So we today, here in this moment, it still has not happened yet. We look forward to the day of the Lord. That's the first thing. The second thing, this is kind of obvious, but Peter doesn't paint a picture of the day of the Lord. He doesn't paint this picture of sunshine and lollipops. Um, if you notice, he compares it to a thief. That's not a good thing. Uh, he passing away with roaring. Not great. Burnt up, dissolved. Not good. Judgment. Everything being exposed. Again, not good. I could say more, but I want us to look at one more New Testament author very quickly, and that is Paul. I think between Peter and Paul, we get a great glimpse of the day of the Lord from the New Testament where we stand today, perspective. Paul says this, I'm gonna be in 1 Thessalonians 5, starting in verse one. He says, now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. There's our thief again, again, not good. Verse 3, while, while people are saying there is peace, there is security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. Any women who have given, given birth experience this, you know, not good, right? Not good. Then he says, just like Joel, just like Joel, Paul says the same thing. He says, and they will not escape. So just like Joel says, hey, these locusts are coming. Nothing's going to escape. Paul then says, they will not escape. Nothing escapes. Verse 4, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. 
For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. I want you to hear me. Paul is saying the same thing Joel says. Joel, if you can remember, says, hear this, be alert, be on guard. Don't be in the dark. Tell it to your kids, tell it to their kids, tell it to their kids' kids. Tell it, do not be unaware. Well, Paul here says the same thing. He says, don't be caught off guard, don't be unaware, be alert. You and I live differently. If I told you a thief was coming to your house tonight, you would live differently than if I did not tell you a thief was coming to your house tonight. Paul says, be alert, be in the know, live differently in light of the coming of the day of the Lord because it is coming. And then listen to the hope of the gospel that Paul gives us in verse nine. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another, build one another up, just as you are doing. We need to hear me, church. Our God hates sin. Our God still hates sin. And absolutely no sin will go unpunished. Not because our God is vindictive, mean, or cruel, but because he is good and just. It's just like an earthly judge. If, if we had a judge in our community who just ignored all wrongdoing, pardoned all criminals because it just seemed too harsh to punish, you and I could say a lot of things about that judge. We could not say that he was good or that he was just, though. And side note, I would not, for one, want him judging in my community. Everything in me would be crying out for justice because that's not justice. That's not just. Just like that, a God who ignores sin is not and could not be perfect and holy. He could be a lot of things, but he could not be just. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. God's response to sin in the Old Testament is God's response to sin in the New Testament. The punishment, the judgment for sin has not lessened and it has not gone away. And to think it has is a misunderstanding of the cross of Jesus Christ. To our God, let me say it again, hates sin, still hates sin. Sin had to be perfectly and fully dealt with then, and sin has to be perfectly and completely dealt with now. And there is coming a day when the Lord, the righteous judge, will return, and all the wrongdoings, all of the sin, all of the things that are broken will be dealt with and will be made right. And the Lord, the righteous judge, will judge all mankind, whether they believe in him or not. He will judge for the things we have done, the things we have not done. There will be a day of reckoning, and as Joel says, nothing will be left. As Peter says, no one will escape. 
Church, do not take your sin lightly because your God does not take it lightly. To take sin lightly is to take Christ lightly. Let me say this again. To take sin lightly is to take Christ lightly. I think of Paul. He says, again, in, in verse 9 of the text we read in 1 Thessalonians, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. I am a sinner, and God hates sin, and that is a problem. How could it not be that I am not destined for wrath? It's the mystery of the gospel. The song that we sing often that says, Till on that cross... As Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. If you have heard nothing, I want you to hear this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not that God hates sin less. The gospel is not that there is no judgment or no wrath towards sin. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that the wrath of God for your sin was poured out on him instead of you. Only in the cross, only in the cross can our God at the same time be just, holy, perfect, righteous, and loving, gracious, merciful, and for your sins to be forgiven. Only through the cross of Jesus Christ is that possible. So Paul says, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not destined for wrath because the wrath that was destined for us was taken by Jesus. That is really good news. And that's what we stand on in the gospel. And now, because of that, through Christ, we obtain salvation. God hates sin. He still hates sin. And all sin will be dealt with because he is holy, he is righteous, he is just, And on the day of the Lord, as Joel points us to, there will be nothing left before him. All sin will be brought before him. There will be nothing hidden. We will all give an answer. And this day will come like a thief in the night. It will come like the locust. And nothing will be left and no one will stand. This is how seriously God takes sin. And that's how serious the cross of Jesus Christ is. Because without him, without the cross, we would not stand either. This is why it's so important to understand that the gospel, the church, is not about awesome people becoming more awesome for Jesus. It's not about good people becoming better people for Jesus. It is about dead, condemned sinners, sinners on death row, being given grace because someone else died in our place. The gospel says that through the cross of Jesus, because of the love of our God, Jesus took our sin, took the punishment for our sins so that we can be saved, so that we can be justified, so that we can be made righteous and holy before God. And because of this, I just want to remind us before we finish, when we stand before him, when we stand before Jesus on that day, we will stand before him as as righteous which blows my mind. Paul in in 2 Corinthians says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's Jesus taking your sin as a sinless sacrifice. That's Jesus. 
so that in him, that's in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. So our God hates sin, still hates sin, and you are a sinner, but by the grace of God, through the cross of Jesus Christ, you are the righteousness of God. That is good news. And the day of the Lord is coming when all sin will be dealt with, and our great temptation will be to take our sin lightly. I told you that this message, that Joel's message of the day of the Lord is a countercultural message. Whether it's because the culture or people have told you, don't worry about it, just be yourself. Be true to you, be you. Everything's gonna be okay. Just be you, be true to yourself. It's, it's all good. Or maybe it's because someone in the church has told you, don't worry about all that stuff. There's grace. Just don't worry about it. Our temptation is going to be, your temptation is going to be to be content with the very sin that took your Savior's life. To grow content with your sin instead of making war against it. And listen, having saying this, I know, we know that scripturally, no sin is too great, no sin is too much, nothing can separate us from the cross of Jesus. We know that, but we also know that that is not a call to us to be okay with snuggling up with the very thing that took our Savior's life. There is nothing more that the enemy of your soul would want than for you to go grow complacent with your sin. To just snuggle up instead of making war. And to be caught off by the day of the Lord like a thief in the night. Our temptation is going to be to be content with the sin that our God hates rather than hating that sin. And Joel reminds us right where we are, right where you are today, reminds us boldly our God hates sin and so should we. Christ died for your sin, so why do we continue to live in it? There's a day coming when the Lord, the righteous judge, will deal with our sin, all of our sin. So let us cling to Christ, stand on the gospel and repent because the day of the Lord is near. Listen, I, I wanna end a little bit differently than we normally do this morning. Um, I want us to end with a little bit of a time of response. Uh, the band is going to come up here and they're gonna lead us in a song and as they sing it, right where you are, in your seat, I want to invite you, challenge you to respond. I want to invite you and challenge you to take a moment to pray and to reflect. Midway in, Caitlin's going to ask that you stand and join in singing. And in that time, when you stand and you join, we can finish our time together by just singing the gospel over each other. And so as they sing the first couple verses, I just want to invite you and challenge you to take this moment to understand that our God wants to speak and that he is speaking. Let us take a moment to hear, to pray, to reflect. And then as you stand, would you just finish our time together singing the truth of the gospel? Let's respond together.